Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we begin a new series, Soul Detox. In this series, we'll be led to discover some things that are contaminating our souls and we don't even realize it. Today, Lead Pastor David Fossil directs our attention to the heavy soul. Listen as he lays the groundwork for this study that looks at the non-physical side of our lives, the differences between soul and body. It was my first semester of my freshman year. I finished my last final. I ran back to my dorm room. I grabbed my suitcase, got a hail the cab, uh, got down to the regional airport in Santa Barbara where I was going to school, flew to the 30 minutes or so to LAX in Los Angeles, waited for about an hour and a half. Then I took a six-hour flight from Los Angeles to Kennedy Airport in New York, had another four-hour layover, uh, then took a flight from uh, New York to the capital of Spain, Madrid, nine-hour flight, then a two, another two-hour layover, and then finally my, the, last, uh, the last leg of my trip, 45 minutes from Madrid, Spain, to my home in Barcelona, where I grew up for the first 18 years of my life. And I got there at about 8.30 in the morning, and uh, of course, any international flight, it seems like the luggage always takes longer to come out, and you get your luggage, and then you got to go through passport control. And in Barcelona, they have a long hallway. You go down after passport control, and then you make a sharp left. And then you, you know, they have a crowd of people, everybody waiting for everybody coming off the plane. And right over in the corner, I could see my parents and my sister, who I'd not seen in almost a year, and ran up to them, gave them a big hug, and it was just a fun time. And, and uh, you know, we, they helped me carry my bags. We got to the car, and we drove the nine minutes from the airport in Barcelona to our home in Castelfels. And as we were in the car, they were catching up and how'd the flight go and what was the meal and what was the movie in the, you know, in the plane and all those kind of, you know, s- small talk kind of questions. And right in the middle of this conversation, my mother stops and she goes, she, she turns to my dad. She goes, James, can you smell that? What, what is that? He goes, I don't know, but it is stanky. It is awful. You know, and right as this is going on, my sister sitting next to me in the back seat go, it's David. I'm like, I don't smell. You smell. What's wrong? And then we realized what happened. Um, this was way back in the day. You guys will remember when in airports and in planes, you could still smoke, right? You can't do that anymore. Well, you can't smoke in airports, but they put them like in a big glass container or something. You've seen that. But in planes, you could smoke. I mean, you might have smoking section and non-smoking section. And, uh, you know, but that little curtain wouldn't stop anything. In this particular flight, I was sitting in the smoking section not because I was smoking, just because that's the only place they had a seat. And I was sitting next to people that were lighting up, you know, Marlboros and Camel Lights and the whole flight. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize what that secondhand smoke had done for nine hours straight as it had seeped into my clothing and into my hair. Uh, of course, in those days, we weren't talking about what secondhand smoke was doing to, to other people's lungs. I didn't realize what it had done to me over nine hours. By the way, every once in a while, I have someone come up to me and go, Pastor, is it a sin to smoke? Will, will I go to hell if I smoke? And I always say the same, same thing. No, you're not going to go to hell if you smoke. You might smell like you've been there back and forth, but you're not going to. And that's what I, that's what I smell like. I smell like a chimney, right? And I remember my mom saying to me, as soon as we get home, I want you to go upstairs. I want you to take a shower, get rid of all those clothes, throw them in the outside room, which was the equivalent of our, our garage, and, and I'll wash it for you, right? I didn't realize 
what that secondhand smoke was doing for me. Likewise, many of us don't realize what the secondhand toxins and poisons of our contaminated world is doing to our very souls. We don't realize it. We don't even know and can't identify some of the toxins and the poisons that we are ingesting, whether it's at home or at school or in the media or books we read or music we listen to. We don't even realize it, but it is seeping into our very soul and it is impacting us spiritually in ways we don't even realize. And that's what this series is about. Everybody talks about, you know, body detox where you try and clean out your body. Uh, For the next four weeks, we're going to talk about soul detox. And I'm going to try and identify some of the things in our world that um, are possibly contaminating your soul and you don't even realize it. I'm also going to try and talk to you about different conditions of our soul. So we're going to talk about the, the, you know, the discouraged and depressed soul. Or we're going to talk about the seduced soul and the polluted soul, the distracted soul. Today, you, you saw from the, the short little video, we're going to talk about a heavy soul. You, you know what I mean by that. Um, many of us... Uh, or some of us maybe came in today and we have a heavy soul and no one around us will ever know You know during coffee time and donut time and everything looks like we're normal But we came with something that's on our heart and it's heavy And it's a burden to us now before we jump into that topic this morning Specifically because it's week one of the series. I want to give you kind of a big picture Of our terms and make sure everyone understands what we're talking about here You need to understand that you and I exist both as body and soul so body is the physical part of us, soul is the, is the non-physical part of us. It's interesting that you don't have to be a Christian to believe this. Philosophers and theologians from all kinds of different faiths uh, have this understanding, and I think we instinctively know, you know, we have flesh and skin, but then there's something on the inside, uh, inside of us, the non-material part of us, the headquarters of who we are, and, and that the Bible primarily refers to as soul now sometimes it uses other words like spirit or heart it all means the same thing it's the non-physical side of you in the gut of who you are some biblical theologians it would would take it one step further and say most of us and we'll get to this in other part other weeks we focus primarily on the body on our eyesight and what we can hear we we lift weights to strengthen our muscles we try and get a tan we focus on the outside and, and, and the biblical writers go, you got to be very, very careful because so many of us focus on, you know, we're a body with a soul. And actually what the Bible primarily talks about is, no, you're more a soul that has a body. In fact, the Bible says at some point in time in your existence after you die, before God gives you a new renewed body, you may exist for a while as a soul with no body. I know I'm getting all metaphysical and philosophical with you. You could talk to me more about that if you want to hear But even right at the beginning of the Bible, we are given a hint that the primary part of you is not what we see on the outside, but this thing the Bible calls the soul. Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God formed man and woman from the dust of the ground. And he breathed into their nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. You you know this. It doesn't matter how much you go to the gym. It doesn't matter how hard you try. Eventually, you're going to lose your hair. You're going to gain extra weight. Your back's going to go out. You're going to get a disease, and you will end up in a box. That's life. And yet, so many of us spend so much time 
on this part of us. And I'm not saying you don't want to take care of yourself. We're glad you showered and brushed your hair this morning. But the Bible would say, goodness gracious, while your body and my body is decaying, it is, it is decaying. Your soul should never be decaying. It should be growing stronger and stronger and more and more healthy in Christ. And that's what I want to talk to you about for four weeks. Now, to understand this correctly, what, what does the soul do? Well, what is it in charge of? Three things real quick. Let me show you this. Put it on the screen. Our soul controls our intellect, what we think. Our souls control our will, what we decide or what we do. Our soul controls our emotions, how we feel or what we feel. It is the, it is the headquarters, it is the, the control center of everything you are. It is the most important part of everything you are. That's why Peter says this to us in the book of, of 1 Peter. Let's put it up on the screen. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners. He's making the point that your real home as, as children of Christ is, should, is in heaven with God. You really just have a visa and you all have, we all have green cards here. This is not really home. So don't get too comfortable. You are, I am, a temporary resident and foreigner. And with that in mind, the warning is to keep away from worldly desires, here it comes, that wage war against your very souls. Make no mistake about it, the enemy has one and one goal for you, to attack and to kill and corrupt your soul. Because when he has your soul, he has all of you. That's why this is so important. Now, what we're going to talk about this morning is this idea of what do we do when we have a heavy soul? If you have your Bible, Psalm 42 is where we're going to be. If you're using a church Bible, it's going to be page 560. Page 560, I want to encourage you to turn there. We're going to look to Psalm 42 and 43. The primary theme verse of those two Psalms that you work together as a unit is this verse right here. It is repeated three, four times. It is a verse that you have most often already heard before. It is a famous verse found in the book of Psalms. And here's what the psalmist says. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? You know how this works, right? You get some really bad news. You hear from work that they're downsizing and you don't, you don't have much seniority and you're probably going to get cut. One of your kids who you deeply love makes a very, very poor decision that they're going to have to live with for years. The doctor calls you back and says the tests are back. It's not good. You need to come back in. We need to do more tests. You break up with someone who you thought you were going to marry. You break up with someone who you were married to. You get a call from someone and tells you that one of your family members that you deeply love has passed on. And it goes on and on and on, right? The heaviness of the soul. I read in an article this week, I wrote it down to make sure I got this right, that... Uh, this generation, our generation, is said to have the highest percentage of people who deal with, and this is the phrase, listen, a constant low-grade depression. A constant low-grade depression. 
We're not talking about the serious clinical, clinical depression. If you start spiraling out of control into that situation, you want to sit down with someone, whether it's, it's a pastor or, or a counselor, you got to figure that out. It, it can be dangerous, right? Th- this is just that gnawing, constant heaviness on the inside of us. Nothing seems to improve. It's just this heaviness in my heart and in my soul. There's two things I want to just draw your attention to in this verse. Let me show you real quick. The first one, the Hebrew word disturb literally means to crouch or bow down or fall down. It's referring to one of those days where you feel like curling up in the fetal position on your couch and not doing anything. You ever felt that way? By the way, don't ever let any well-intentioned Christian tell you that it's not right or it's not godly to feel heavy, discouraged, Or like the psalmist says here, downcast. You shouldn't feel that way. You've got God in your life. You've got Jesus in your life. The way you're feeling is wrong. It's simple. They mean well, but they're wrong. Because time and time and time and time again, we have example after example of very godly men and women who say this in God's word. I got a heavy heart. You can be both very committed to God and, 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 and believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, be healthy spiritually, but emotionally be broken. Does that make sense? Now, the flip side, however, is that because of God and because of Jesus, you shouldn't stay broken. There are solutions. There are ways to bounce back, which is the other word I circled. I normally don't do this, but every psalm has a subscript. If you look at the book of Psalms, uh, and, and right here, this is actually in the book, book of Psalms, if you see it. Right at the beginning of Psalm 42, it says, book number two, Psalm 42 to 72. I don't know if you know this, but Psalms is divided up into five sections, five books, five hymnals. Psalm 42 is book two, Right? And then then right after the psalm, there's always what's called a subscript. It was part of the Hebrew. It's inspired by God. And it is actually directions for our for, for our joy socking, that equivalent. An, a directive to the band, to the choir, whoever's leading the song. Notice, for the director of music, sometimes they would say, this is a fast song, this is a slow song, this is a meditative song, use in- these instruments for that song, these instruments for this song. They would give indication. This one adds that this, this psalm is a maskil written by the sons of Korah. Now, maskil is a Hebrew verb that means to instruct, to give wisdom and suggestion. And so what God is trying to tell us through this psalm is Psalm 42 and 43 is meant for those of us who are disturbed and downcast. For those who are, who are on the couch, don't want to get up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some instruction. I'm going to give you some wisdom on how to bounce back. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and encourage you that way. And I'm going to give you three things based upon this psalm. For those of us who are heavy, or, or when we're heavy, a month from now or two months, what do we do? What do we do? Let's start by just reading the psalm. uh, Psalm 42, verses 1 through 6, says this. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. I don't know many of you remember. This used to be a chorus we used to sing years and years ago. And, And many of us poke fun of it now because it's an old song, an old chorus. But the reality is that the power of this phrase, the reason it was made into a song is because it is a powerful phrase indicating someone who thirsts for God. I want you. And that's what he goes on to say in verse two. My soul thirsts for you, God, the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? 
Now, notice how descriptive verse three, my tears have been my tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where's your God? My tears have been food for my soul. And he goes on and you'll notice now I'm highlighting a couple things that lead us into the first point. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty God. By the way, when you're reading, one of the best things to do is ask good questions. And the question you should ask in verse 4 is, why does he say that he used to go to the house of God? Dude, that's your problem. You need to get back to church. Get back to church. You used to go. You don't go anymore. It begins to give us a hint that we will now see a little bit later on that many biblical writers believe that who is writing Psalm 42 is in exile, not living in Judah, not living in, in Israel. And they have been exiled because the country has been taken over by, by a foreign government. So he used to go to the temple, but he can't go anymore. It goes on in, in the rest of that verse with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. And then here's the verse again. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you, notice, from the land of, not Judah, not the land of Jerusalem, not the land of Israel. No, I'm going to remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. That means nothing to us. But if you know the geography in that area and you study, it's not very hard to figure out. He's outside of where God meant him to be. He's at the top of a mountain looking at the land promised to God's people. And he's going, I'm down and I'm discouraged and I got a heavy heart. I got a heavy heart. Now, I've highlighted for you the first point, the first idea of what do I do if I have a heavy heart? If you want to jot this down, here's the first thing. You need to remember God's faithfulness in your past. Remember God's faithfulness in your past. Now, if you look at the key song, uh, key verse, for example, verse 5. That's our key verse. Psalm 42, verse five. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within you, within me? Question. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to a friend? Is he talking? Is he talking to a spouse? Is he a preacher preaching on Sunday morning? No, you know who's talking to himself. He's talking to himself. Do you ever do that? You ever talk to yourself? We all do. Therapists call it self-talk. Do you ever get caught talking to yourself? <laughs> I do. I talk to myself all the time. I'm talking to myself. And, you know, Sandy's accustomed to it. I remember about a month or two ago, I was, do I was talking to myself. I was just talking to myself. And Sandy and Julia walked by, my nine-year-old, okay? She goes to Sandy. She goes, who's dad talking to? She goes, ah, he's just talking to, her, to himself. And she thought nothing of it, kept walking. And my daughter looked at me like, dad is jacked up. We all talk to ourselves. If, if your soul is heavy, guess, guess what the first thing you need to do? You need to preach to yourself. Literally, that's what he's doing. He's preaching. He's going, what is wrong with you, my soul? What is wrong with you, my spirit? Why are you so discouraged? Why are you so downcast? Why are you so in despair? Why is your soul heavy? Get, come on, pick yourself up. 
don't you remember the kind of God that you have? Don't you remember the way God has helped you, bailed you out in your past? He preaches to himself. Psalm 77 speaks much of the same thing. Let me put it on the screen for you. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider and remember all of your works. I will meditate and remember all your mighty deeds. You see, when your heart is heavy, step one is remember God's faithfulness to you in your past. Just rewind the tape and remember those times he's helped you out, bailed you out, given you wisdom, provided for you. One of my go-to stories, and we all should have a couple go-to stories, happened to me in December of 1992. Sandy and I were a recently married couple living in the north side of Chicago. I was enrolled at Trinity Seminary University, working on my master's degree of divinity. Uh, Sandy was the only one working. I was trying to make it through as quickly as possible. So, you know, one income, we were very, very tight, also paying for school. I lived 45 minutes away from school. We did that so Sandy could be close to work, right? Uh, December the 21st, I had just finished finals, and uh, we had devoted that morning to go Christmas shopping. We were going to fly to New Jersey to be with her family. We didn't have any uh, gifts purchased. And so we had devoted that morning, that day, to get some, some gifts before we went on our flight the very next day. We got up a little bit later than normal, had a cup of coffee, showered, got ready, went downstairs. Of course, we were all bundled up. This is the middle, middle of the, the winter in Chicago. We were getting ready to spend 15 minutes cleaning off the snow from the car. We got downstairs to where, where we parked right in front of our street on Strong Street, only to get there, and we couldn't find our cars. Now, my first thought was, it's the youth group. The youth group got a hold of somehow and moved my cars, you know. But then very quickly, we noticed on the floor there was some glass. And real quickly, we realized what happened. On the very same night, three days before Christmas Day, both cars were stolen. It made it even worse, I think, that it was Christmas. Because you know how Christmas, you're all happy and, you know, Rudolph the Red Reindeer and eggnog and everything, and boom, cars are gone. Sandy's car was fully insured. It was a little bit nicer. She always gets the nice car in the family, you know, (laughs) as you know by what I drive, you know. And mine was not. You know how you have those cars that they're not worth insuring fully? And so um, the very next day, Sandy's car came back, but mine did not. And so we got on a plane to New Jersey wondering what we were going to do. We, because we were a young couple with n- nothing in a bank, basically, how do we make it? You know, um, it wasn't the most fun Christmas, to be honest with you, because I had this wane on me. I did. Got back uh, from New Jersey to Chicago. Um, the semester started at school. And the first two weeks, I missed half my classes. I had nowhere to, no one to give me a ride. I was 45 minutes away. And I'm going to tell you what I did. God, what are you doing? I mean, I, I'm trying to get ready to serve you. What are you, what are you doing? I was stuck. I was, I was this close to figuring I got to drop out this quarter because I can't, I can't make, I can't learn if I'm not in class, right? And uh, one evening, I got a call from an older gentleman at church. And he says, David, uh, about 10 families got together at church and uh, we bought you a new car. We're delivering it tomorrow morning. And it wasn't a new car, but it was a new car to me. It was actually much better than the car I had. It was one of these small little sports cars. 
And it was, and I want to tell you one thing about the sports car. It was one of the first cars that had uh, a voice activated in the car. It talked to you. It did. But I think it was so new, they hadn't tested it out in terms of what it was supposed to do. I kid you not. The way it talked to you is it had a, a, a very sultry, seductive female voice. I kid you not. So my car would say to me, your door is ajar. I'm not kidding you. I remember the first time Sandy drove with me. The first time Sandy drove with me, she's sitting right there, you know, and we're driving, we're talking, and all of a sudden, your fuel levels are low. She looks at me, and I remember going, what, are you jealous? And you know me, I wasn't going to let that go, so I'm driving, I, I rub the, the, the dashboard, I'm like, it's okay, baby, it's okay, she gets like that. <laughs> so, I mean, I was back to school, right? I was a little bit behind when I was back to school. The story gets better. Seven months later, Chicago PD calls me and says, we found your car. So now I have three cars. So I call the dude up at, at church that had bought the car. I go, so should I give you this other one back? What do I do? He says, no, just keep the car, sell one of them, keep the money. I came out of it with a better car and $5,000 in my pocket. Now, here's my point. That's one of my go-to stories. You know why? Because I, I go through this kind of stuff. You know, I could be going, what? God, what are you doing with this building thing? God, I, I got this issue with my kid. We all have issues with kids. And when I do, you know, and, and, and sometimes I get so involved in the issue, I got to take a step back, a time out, and go back and remember how faithful God has been to me. You need a go-to story. If you don't have a go-to story, take my story. Take someone else's story. You need a story because you need to remember who God is. He is a good God that loves you and is faithful. Why is this such a big deal? Why is remembering such a big... By the way, in the Old Testament, they have all these stories, and then God always told them, I want you to build this a statue of remembrance. Why? He doesn't want them to forget what he's done for them. Why is this such a big deal? Let's go back to our go-to verse. Let's put it back up there. Psalm 45, verse 2. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Because when you remember, your hope is enhanced. And when your hope is enhanced, the heaviness of your heart starts to fade away. True story. Um, about 35 years ago, an experiment was conducted at Cal Berkeley, right down the street, involving Norwegian field rats. And what they did is they took these Norwegian field rats and put them in a bucket, a big tub of water, and let them swim around, Right? They let them swim around and swim around and swim around as long as they could until they became exhausted and drowned. Kind of a weird experiment, right? Um, but but they, they had a purpose. They, now that they had the, their, their, their setup, they discovered that Norwegian rats will swim on average seven hours before they are exhausted and drowned. That's as long as they can go. So now they had their test group. And now they set up the second part of the experiment. And the second part of the experiment involved taking Norwegian rats, putting them in the same kind of bucket of water, and letting them swim and swim and swim until they get exhausted. They're about ready to drown. And then what they would do is they would take the rat out for just two, three seconds. Not enough for them to regain their strength. Just enough for them to know, oh, I'm not drowning. And then they put them back in. 
And then they would swim and swim and swim and swim until they were about ready to drown. And they would take them out three, four seconds, put them back in. And what they discovered with the second group is that those Norwegian rats were able to swim 20 hours before drowning. Almost three times more. And these researchers concluded this, quote, The second test group was able to swim almost three times longer because of hope. We are not field rats. And we don't have a God that is doing experiments and research on us. But we too, without hope, will drown. Now, I don't have a table in the back for you where you can just pick up a bag of it. The key is you have to have hope. By the way, not in your pastor, not in your spouse, not in your family, not in Obamacare, not in the government. No, what you have to have hope in is put your hope in God. That's the point. Remember the kind of God you have. Remember how he's bailed you out. Remember how he's taken care of you in the past. That will enhance your hope, which then begins to take the heaviness away. Step number one, remember. Remember how he's helped you. Remember how he's been with you. The second thing the psalmist says is learn to cry out to God in your present. Cry out to God in your present. Verse 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go on mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony. In other words, he's in literal physical pain. It's not just spiritual, emotional pain. It's physical pain. My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Can I ask you a question? When you feel heavy on the inside, what do you do? What is your go-to behavior? Some of us isolate. I don't even want to be with people because I know what they're going to do. They're going to ask me, hey, how are you doing? And then, they, you know, no matter what I say, they're going to see it on my face. I just want to be by myself. Some people do just the opposite personality wise. They want to be with as many people as possible. Some people go exercise. I'm going to go to the gym. Well, you know, I'm going to do weightlift or whatever, do my Zumba class. You know, some people go shopping. Don't we? We just not. Yes, yeah, praise the Lord. It's a couple of ladies in the back. Yeah. <laughs> it has a way of numbing us. Oh, I feel horrible. I'm going to go buy me something. You know, some of us um, have been known to take drugs or drink excessively. I got someone sent me this quick little story on, on that topic. It says a preacher was complete, uh, completing a temperance sermon. That's about not drinking. Okay. Completing a temperance sermon with great expression. He said, if I had all the beer in the world, I'd take it and throw it in the river. With then even greater emphasis, he added, and if I had all the wine in the world, I'd take it and I'd throw it into the river. And then finally, he said as his last point, if I had all the whiskey in the world, I'd take it and I'd throw it in the river. And all God's people said, amen. And he sat down. The song leader then stood very cautiously and announced with a smile for our closing song this Sunday morning, we will sing hymn number 365 entitled, Shall We Gather at the River? <laughs> could i give you a could i help you out here exercising may work for you you know 
But when your soul is heavy, you got to learn to cry out to God. Now, part of our problem is we don't know how to do that. I, I, what do I do? I'm not sure what I know what to do, Dave. Um, I'm going to tell you the first thing you need, you got to figure out a place you can be by yourself. I'm, I've told you this before. For me, it's walking the dog. Every last night, 930 at night, I walked the dog for about 10 minutes around the block. Every time I walk the dog, I always have a different prayer subject. So yesterday I prayed for every single one of our staff, their spouses and their kids by name. That's what I did. Sometimes I pray this kind of prayer. God, what are you doing? You got to figure out a place. You see, if you're just sitting on your futon at home and the kids are running by and it's it's you're going to get distracted. You got to figure. Now, I do know some people that can do it on Bart. They're just kind of they're by themselves and they're zoned in them and God. You got to find your place. You got to find your place. The psalmist also says this. I cry aloud again for me saying it out helps. I I can pray kind of here and here, but sometimes I get distracted and confused and you know I'm praying and then I'm starting to think about other things and for me it helps to do it out loud. You have to figure it out for you. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. You do know that some of the best counselors and therapists give very little advice if none at all. You know this, right? Their job is to just draw out from you and get you to tell your story. And you know how it works. If you do it, sometimes just just saying it, it gets off your chest. Works the same way with God. The great counselor. Now, I'm going to tell you because it does say here, I'm going to pour out my complaint to him. I I don't know if I have this in the notes, but there's three things I want to encourage you to do. When you do pour it out and cry out to him, these are, let's put it up on the screen. Three things real quick. When you cry out to God, be honest. Be honest. There are different questions he asks in Psalm 42. Question number one in verse nine. uh, Why have you forgotten me? You ever feel that? God, it feels like you just forgot about me. Hmm. Verse 10. Listen to this one. Where is God? This almost sounds sacrilegious, but again, to me, it is encouraging that God's word doesn't sugarcoat it and helps us acknowledge that we're going to have these down kind of days and pouring out this kind of stuff before God is not only emotionally healthy, it's spiritual health, spiritually healthy. And then in verse uh, two of Psalm 43, why have you rejected me? God, it seems like you're blessing everyone else around me. I feel rejected. I mean, he's kind of laying it out. You you can tell him how you feel and what you think. Second step, however, when you do that, be respectful. Don't ever forget who you're talking to. It's one thing to be honest, but you best be respectful. Now, one of the things I think is interesting, and I've given you just one of several hints in, in these two Psalms. My God, my rock. What is he acknowledging? What is he saying to God? You're the man. You're in charge. You're my commander in chief. I'm going to follow you. But then he goes on to say, I I got some issues. And I love that because he acknowledges who God is personally and theologically. And then he goes, but we got to talk. And here's my issues. Right. So so be honest, but be respectful. And then the last thing is be specific. Every single one of those there 
uh, occur in Psalm 43. In verse 1, the first two words, vindicate me. Right? It, later on in, in that verse, rescue me. In verse 3, send me your light, your faithful care. Give me insight. By the way, he doesn't necessarily take the problem away. You've got to learn to cry out to God. I know you believe in him. Some of you just aren't crying out to him enough or at all. And you've got to learn that skill to come to God with honesty and say, here's what's going on and, and acknowledge who he is in your life. But learn to do that. Last thing I'm going to wrap this up is acknowledge God's power and goodness in your future. Now, notice in your past, you remember his faithfulness. In your present, you cry out to him for wisdom and what's going on. And in your future, you realize and understand that because of the goodness of God and because of the power of God, there's good things in store for your soul. Maybe not your eyesight, but your soul. He's got you. Verse 40, uh, verse 3 and 4 from Psalm 43. Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain. What is he saying? I'm on in Jordan. I'm on Mount Mitzah looking. I haven't been to the temple in a long time, but I know who you are. And I know what you've done. And I know I'm going to get back to the holy mountain. I'm going to get back to the temple. To the place where you dwell. And I will go to the altar of God. To God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre. To God, oh, oh God, my God. This next picture up, there's a U.S. Thresher nuclear submarine picture taken in 1963. This is a big deal to the U.S. Navy because of what happened to this submarine, and it wasn't a good thing. Uh, towards the end of 1963, um, the engines on the U.S. Thresher uh, failed, and the, the submarine was unable to get back to the surface. And instead, it sunk lower and lower and lower in the depths of the ocean. Eventually, they lost contact with the U.S. Thresher. And the reason for that was because the iron uh, bulkheads uh, cracked and 139 of our men and women died on that submarine. Because it was a nuclear submarine, the Navy decided they needed to have a very thorough search because there was information, of, not to mention nuclear material on that sub, they needed to retrieve. They found the submarine at 8,400 feet below the surface of the water, crushed like an egg. And they began to retrieve what they needed. But one of the interesting things is that the Navy researchers were curious about one thing at 8,300 feet below the surface of the water. What they were curious about is why something like the U.S. Thresher, with all the technology we have, was crushed like an egg, but there were fish swimming at 8,300 feet below sea level. And their question was, is why will a submarine get crushed, but a fish that doesn't have uh, not even an inch of steel surrounding it? It's just swimming around like no big deal. Why is that? Why don't they get crushed? Why don't their eyes pop out? And the very simple answer by marine biologists is because a, a fish at that level has as much pressure and power on the inside of it as the water pressure comes from the outside of it. As much power and pressure from the inside as power and pressure from the outside from the water. Now, why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story to remind you that Paul tells us 
to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. That was our verse from our campaign, right? According to the power that is at work within you. God's living and active power is in you. You say, well, I don't feel it. I don't care. It's there. As a child of God, the living power of the Holy Spirit is in you. The issue is not whether you understand it here or you feel it here, but whether you believe this. And if God's power is within you, you know what that means? There's good things in store for your future. And again, when I say your future, I don't necessarily mean your finances. I don't necessarily mean your career. I mean your soul. Your soul. I don't have time to break down Psalm 43, but real quickly, let me show you what it says. These last couple things in verse four, it says, I'm going to go to the altar. In verse five, I'm going to praise you. And earlier in verse 42, it says, I'm going to pray and sing to you. I'm going to have our worship band come up. And as they're uh, coming up, I want to talk to you a little bit about the singing deal. I every once in a while have people go, why do we sing so much in church? I realize that's what we refer the first part of the service to. That's the singing portion. And I don't mind if we call it that. But just to be clear, the theological and doctrinal word that is used for the first part of the service is not just singing. It's worship. Now, singing just involves this. It involves my throat, my larynx, my, 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 my tongue, my mouth. That's what it involves. Worship involves my soul. It involves my soul. The point of worship, if done correctly, not only by these people on the stage, but by the rest of us sitting on the chairs, if done correctly, it recalibrates my soul. What worship is meant to do is meant to remind me of God's faithfulness to me in my past. What worship is meant to do is it's meant to Cry out to God, my rock and my redeemer and my present. Even though my life has fallen apart. What worship is meant to do is remind me of the goodness of God and the power of God in my future, irrespective of what's happening in my present. That's what worship is meant to do. You see, I understand as a communicator that the primary goal that I'm I'm trying to get at here, I'm trying to get at your mind. But worship is trying to get at your soul. It's trying to get at your heart, the gut of who you are. We're going to wrap up our service by singing two worship songs. And uh, we're not going to have offering. We did early in the service. But I want to give you the opportunity to do what the psalmist is doing. Recalibrate your soul. Let's stand. We'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, many of us come today like the psalmist with a heavy heart, with a heavy soul. Father, you've reminded us that it doesn't mean that we're spiritually unhealthy. Just acknowledge that we are emotionally hurting and broken. Father, for all the many reasons that we are here today with a low-grade, constant level of discouragement and depression and heaviness, Father, we bring that before you, realizing that we live in a fallen and contaminated world. And even if we do everything right, bad things are very 
possibly going to happen to us on a very regular basis. Heavenly Father, we come to you today acknowledging you for who you are. Our rock and our redeemer. The savior of our souls. Knowing that we will leave here today and not all our problems will go away. But nevertheless, we choose to worship you. Because of your goodness. Because of your faithfulness, your sovereignty. And the knowledge that you are all powerful. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.